Are you ready to live your best life, be stronger, and fall in love with yourself? It's possible, and it's inside you, but you need to unlock the power within. Welcome to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody used to be afraid to take risks. It took some stepping out of her comfort zone to get her there. Along with her guests and their stories, Jody will help you to live your best life ever. Now, here's your host, Jody Harrison Bauer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fearlessly Authentic. I'm your host, Jody Harrison Bauer. And I'm so happy to have you join me once again. If you are new to the show, this is the show where we educate, empower, entertain, and inspire you to live a fearlessly authentic life. Because in my opinion, um, we're all here for a reason and why not live it in our truth, vibrate at our highest frequency. And yes, there are always going to be fears in our life, but it's the way we face them all the time. And that's how we grow. So along with my guests and myself, sometimes I'm on here alone. uh, We talk about things, um, either obstacles that they've overcome and have created ways for others to learn how to overcome those fears or obstacles or a service or a product. And today I am just so blessed with my guest here, and I'm going to introduce her in just a minute before I just remind you to please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, We have a five-star rating, so we'd like to keep it that way. So please give us a five-star rating. I would appreciate it. And you can also subscribe on my YouTube channel. So there you can see me and my guests. And you can listen and watch the show at the same time, which I think is a wonderful thing. I think most of us now love to see what people look like rather, but obviously if you're in your car, you can't do that. So on YouTube or wherever uh, podcast platform you decide to listen to, you can find Fearlessly Authentic with me, Jody Harrison Bauer. And just a reminder about something that I've been talking about also almost every week now, about a year and a half when I turned 60, uh, so that makes me almost 60 and a half, 61 and a half now, um, I started going more plant-based and I used a company called Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A, uh, to create meals and they deliver them to my home. They also have energy bars and um, metabolism powder and metabolism bars and all other types of things to keep us hydrated and feeling our best. And everything is plant-based. One of my favorite products besides their meals that they deliver is their energy bar and their chlorophyll water, which is great to detox if you're dehydrated. So if you want to try this, use my code XOJODY to save 20% off your first order. Go to Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A.com, XOJODY to save 20%. And that is it. That is it, Marion. Here we go. My guest today is Marion Roach-Smith. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's such a joy to be near your energy. Whoa. Oh my goodness. Wow. Thank you. That means so much coming from you. Wow. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, thank you for sitting through that little intro. I know that it's, this is what it is with live radio, right? Yes. Um, and you've, you've been in radio, but we're going to get to all of this. Um, okay. I want to introduce you to the audience. So here we go. Marion Roach Smith is the author of four books, including the memoir project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing and life. A former staffer at the New York Times, she has been a commentator on NPR's All Things Considered and a talk show host on Sirius Satellite Radio. She currently runs a writing lab called The Memoir Project, which I hope to be a part of soon. 
and teaches memoir worldwide at marianroach.com. And we'll give that to you again at the end of the show. So you have lived a very full life. Well, I think I'd like to think I'm fearlessly authentic. And um, I love the fact that that's the way you brand yourself. And I get it, man. That's so important. It, it really is because I think so often we believe, whether it's the way we were raised or the way we've just become, that we need to be something that we're not. And everything in your universe and your world starts to come to fruition when you really are being your authentic self. And that's forever evolving, don't you think? I think so. And I think a lot of us think if we're going to be successful, the people that I deal with are writers. So to be successful, you really can't chase after somebody else's style. You really can't. If you love the YA, the young adult novel world, and you have a big fan base, you know, big fangirl feeling about somebody else's books, don't write those books, write in the YA, but find your own place, right? Because you're just not going to be satisfied. And I think that goes for everything, you know, your own style, all of this stuff that we feel that we respond to in fashion and in, and in media is great that we love it, but being our own selves is where the happiness lies. Absolutely. I agree. And you have a daughter, I have two daughters. And one of the things that I always taught my daughters was, look, it's great to buy something that's trendy, but make sure that the things that you have that you buy are quality and buy one or two trendy things, but don't go all trendy unless you know, you're Rockefeller. Does, does anybody even know who Rockefeller is anymore? <laughs> anyway, the Kardashians, I should say. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, it's um, and don't try to be somebody you're not. I I learned that in a really interesting way uh, when I started competing at 47 in fitness shows. My coach, who was just a few years younger than me, said to me, "Harrison, stop looking at the other girls because I was her oldest client." She said, "Stop looking at the other girls because I would be like, oh, she's." built like me. I should walk like that. I should walk like that. And she said, just walk like you just oh. walk like you. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's pretty brilliant. I don't really know what my walk is, but that's where you step into the truth, right? When you're helping others write their book, their memoir that tell me, tell me a little bit about, well, we're going to get to that. I want to start from the beginning. Okay. How, how did you get involved in, you were a journalist, right? So you went to school for journalism and tell me what happened after you got out of school. So I actually went to school and just had, I was a government major at St. Lawrence University. And when I got out of school, I got, there used to be a lot of entry level jobs in New York in journalism. They, every magazine had them, every TV station had them. It was a very different time. And I got a job at the New York times for the summer. And that was amazing and thrilling. And it was a very exciting time in journalism. It was post Watergate, but it was not before all the other scandals we've had uh, subsequently. But a lot of people were very respectful of journalism then, and especially of the New York Times. And so it was a thrilling place to work. But right after I got there, my father died. And my, he was older than my mom. And my mom started to become forgetful. She was 49 Mm -hmm. years old. And I had no idea what was going on. And as it turned out, neither did a lot anybody else. So I finally got her to a memory clinic. I was lucky to be in Manhattan. There was a memory clinic at NYU. And the doctor diagnosed her with something I had never heard of. Now we've all heard of it. It's Alzheimer's disease. And he said, there are four and a half million people in the country that have this. And it's going to be one of the greatest healthcare crises in the history of the world. And I thought, 
oh my goodness, what should I do? And I ended up writing a piece about it that got published in the New York Times Magazine. This is a few years after I got to the Times, but I was still in my 20s. And it was an extraordinary thing to happen to a young writer. That is the most powerful magazine in the world. That they took a chance on me was remarkable. And I ended up on the Today Show the next day. And that changed my life. Absolutely. So that's how my writing career was launched. So tell me what, was it your frustration in learning about Alzheimer's and trying to educate, like what we're doing here, educating and empower people, empowering people with the knowledge. But as you said, this was not something that a lot of people had ever heard of. Now we, we know about it. Right. No one had ever heard of it and no one had ever written about it in the popular press. No one had ever written a first person account of it. And had she been 95, no one would have cared. But when I described her behavior as incapable, incontinent, unable to recognize me by the time she was 51 years old, by the time the piece was published, that was so shocking. And then I, and I describe her and then I say, my mother is 51 years old. And it was so shocking to people that you couldn't turn away. And the letters started arriving in huge mailbags the first day. And they kept coming and coming and coming because no one had ever talked about it. And yet there were four and a half million people in the, in the country that had it, which means there were about 16 million people in the country involved because everybody has caregivers, right? So it was a huge, huge awakening. And I got calls from everybody. I got calls from the mayor of New York saying, what do you mean there's no information and referral office anywhere in the world? Let's start the first one. This was Mayor Koch, right? Mayor Koch, Ed Koch, right? And I loved him for that. Yes. An amazing thing that he did. And he helped me And the Department of Health set up the first information referral office in the world that's been now copied worldwide. And I got I got a call from Congress to come and testify about research because there was no research dollars. There was no Alzheimer's Association. It was just fledgling. So this was an extraordinary thing to be part of. But but your question was about what was I trying to do? First of all, I was trying to work off some of my rage because this was my mother and she was very young. Mm -hmm. And so with a a writer, you've got to be careful because anger can really destroy your voice as a writer. Mm -hmm. And I had to be careful. So I decided that I would break everyone's hearts. And that worked really, really well. If you want to educate people, my father used to say, who was also a writer, either put something to music or make them laugh. And I thought, wait, I'm going to add one to that or make them cry. And I could make anybody cry telling them the story of my mother. Interesting. That makes total sense. And you just really listen to your heart. Yeah. You try to take the anger out of it because that's hard. You know, when my mom had her stroke, she she passed away at the end of December, but she had a stroke and she was paralyzed on one side and 80% speech impaired. Oh. And it was horrible to see a woman now, granted she was 80, she wasn't 49, but to see, I would assume that your mom was a very vibrant woman to notice that's that decline. And my mom at 80 was very vibrant. That's the word I always use to describe her. And to see that vibrancy just evaporate, it was really sad. And I did, I was in, I was in denial. I was angry and when she was in hospice and I was sharing what I was going through in December, I was just being myself, you know, being fearlessly authentic. And that's sort of what you were trying to do, but you were also educating people. But it was so heartfelt that so many people reached out to me as well. So for me, I'm not a funny person. I think sometimes I'm funny, but I would never write and go, oh, yes, this is a funny book. You know, it would be, it would always be like a heartfelt book. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so do you, so between the article and being on Good Morning America or the Today Show, I'm sorry, the Today Show, that started to change everything. So did you realize, wow, I, I really have the power to write about this and continue to write about this subject or what happened about Yeah, I, I really did. And that really is why I mentioned that I was a government major, because in my in my uh, senior year, I took a class in Congress. And what I learned was that this is a representational government and they want to hear from you. So when I was invited to testify before Congress, I did not hesitate. I did not have the maybe cynicism or callousness or um, doubt in the American system of government that many people have. I genuinely believe that my government needed to hear that there was no funding for what was going to be one of the greatest healthcare crises in the history of the world. And I went down there and I broke their hearts. In fact, Claude Pepper, who was the head of the, the Committee on Aging, said it was the first time he ever cried in his own committee meeting. And that was my intent, because if you break their hearts, they're going to write you a check. And we needed those checks. We needed the research. There hasn't been a cure yet, but we've done a lot of research and we've done a lot of good. So to be part of the conversation, what I realized you talked, you asked about the, what did I think I was doing to be part of a conversation to do good is a remarkable feeling. It also is a lot of power and you have to be careful. So what I real what happened to me was one night I was driving on the FDR drive in Manhattan and I saw a bumper sticker and it said, insulin is not a cure. And I thought, wow, I get that. And I went back and I did my research and the, after insulin was developed, the research for diabetes fell precipitously because they had a treatment. And so when I started testifying, I said, we don't want a treatment. I don't want palliative care. We want a cure, fund the cure. Don't fund the, you know, the research. And it was a, it was a message that has been changed since because we do have to treat, but it was so helpful to me, that little moment, right? right. If you've got your eyes open, there's yes. a bumper sticker goes whizzing by and you go, wait well, a minute. If I'm going to do good, I want to do good well. I want to actually deliver a message fearlessly and authentically that makes the distinction that I don't want to fall prey to the American Drug Association's, you know, just treating the disease. I want a cure. So that helped. Right. Those little messages, as you said, that we things right. happen for a reason that right. happened for a reason. It really it really, really does. And, you know, being curious, which you clearly are, do you think that is a key to a successful journalist or writer to be curious all the it's time? A single, it's a single most important aspect of a writer. You cannot do this if you're not curious. You have to be able to say what what else? And when someone says, hey, have you talked to Jody Harrison Bauer when I'm doing a story about being fearlessly authentic? They, you know, they say that to you when you're talking to somebody else and you say, no, may I have her number? And you get her number and you, I call you. And then you say, oh, I had someone on my show last week who told me this story. And then I call her. It's all curiosity. And the fact is we're so defensive. We're so afraid not to know something. You know this. Yes, People yes. say, have you read such and such? And we, we think, I better say yes. No, right, no. Right. Don't say yes. <laughs> I don't. Say, tell me about it, right? Right. Tell me about it. Because maybe it's something I need to know. So yes, curiosity is the single highest value of all journalists, all writers. I think you've got to be curious. You never know where it's going to lead. I would think so. I had somebody on my guest a few months ago who said, uh, be more interested than interesting. 
And that really stuck with me because it's that curiosity factor. You have to have it. I think it has to be innate. Um, I think you could learn it also, but I, I think for somebody like you who started writing so early and had such amazing success, I think that it's probably part of your DNA. And also you both parents were writers. I mean, yeah. you've been in this whole world of writing. But right? it, it's something, yeah. It, it, but it's something I tell people all the time. I work with a lot of writers. Be curious. Don't be defensive about what you don't know. What you don't know is going to lead you to wonder. It's going to be an astonishing journey if you just keep asking. And writers forget all the time. You can call anybody, anybody. And I've done this a thousand times and ask them, can I see what you do for a living? Can I come see what you do for a living? I have never had someone say no to me. I have been to autopsies. I have been on outrageous places in the world, see, looking at things. I have flown her halfway around the world to interview people. If you say it to them that way, I'm writing a novel and my character is a, is a, is a flower shop owner. May I come and see how you run your flower shop? That person will be so well honored. Yes. To have you, you can tag along with almost anyone. I've even gotten in the backseat of a lot of police cars over the years by just saying, can I go along? And I have. I know. I want to I talk about that. So you wrote this book, New York, New York, on the Today Show. It changed your life. It yes. changed your life. The yes. next book, that was, the name of that book was called Another Name for Madness, correct? Yes. It was okay. published by Houghton Mifflin. Yep. Okay. And you wrote that in what year? 19... I was published in the 80s. In the 80s. Probably. Yeah. Okay. And we mentioned Ed Koch and um, you writing in the back of a police car. That The name of that book that you were doing this research for, and I want to hear about that, is called Dead Reckoning? Yes. That Tell was a, about I, that. I spent two years behind the scenes in the world of forensic science, which was really wild. I had I met, find it fascinating. You know, it was, I, what I noticed was I was watching all those shows in the early iteration of those forensic science shows. I was right. watching it, but I was watching them like this with my <laughs> Me too. Me that. too. Yeah. And I thought, now, wait a second, if you're watching them, what's the fear factor and what's that all about? And I wonder how many millions of people watch them that way. And oh my goodness, I got to write a book about this. So I met Dr. Michael Bodden, who's arguably the finest forensic pathologist in the world. He's done everybody from, he was literally part of the Warren Commission in the investigation of the assassination of John Kennedy through, he's out there today doing autopsies. You know, we've got Dr. Lee here in the New Haven area. Uh, and, and Dr. Lee is in that book. I mm -hmm. got to ride with Dr. Lee for a couple of days. Great man. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. He's He's brilliant. He's also right. unintuitive. I mean, he sees things that no one else sees. Right. So I proposed to Dr. Baden that if we co-wrote this book, he could get me into the schools that only law enforcement are allowed to attend. So blood spatter analysis school, forensic entomology, which is studying bugs, and to like into like places like seeing Henry Lee in at work. And he said, sure, I'll get you access to all that. And that was so thrilling. So I ended up at autopsies. I ended up at um, looking at a lot of crime scene photos, but I ended up in these, in these, in these very specialized schools like blood spatter analysis school, which is crazy wild. And you have to go through those as a law enforcement person to be able to testify in court. So you can say, I am a certified blood spatter analysis person. 
For me, it worked really well being a parent of a young child because I could say, oh, she cut her finger here, went screaming, running down the hall. Look at the blood on the ceiling. I can tell. No, it's just, it was kind of funny. It was like, yeah, this is weird because it's kind of coming into my own life. But right, right. That was a lot of fun and very interesting. And I got to do all those things. We went out to Las Vegas. Um, we went out to, to Reno. I got to meet Wayne Newton, which was hilarious Ooh. and wild. And I can't even I, imagine what he must look like in person. Right. And yeah, a little he's scary. all diamonds and expensive cowboy boots, man. And wow. he had a particular issue that he wanted to explore with the forensic scientists. So I had a lot of fun. And that book came out um, right before 9-11. That's when I remember the pub date was. So we, we had an, ex- I had an extraordinary experience to look into my own curiosity to get back to your original point. So we're going to get, get into your other book and, and what you do to help other people. You know, I loved when I said, tell me about your book. And you said, I had this curiosity about blah, blah, blah. So I decided I'm going to write a book about that. I, to me, and we talked about this earlier, to me, one of, one of the places that I'm the least confident ever is I've never written a book. I don't, I, I would be so insecure about, I, I can't even imagine saying what you just said, which was, oh yeah, I'm really curious about that. I'm going to write, write a book about it. It's just crazy. And I just, I wish um, I, I had the confidence to do it. So, but that's what you teach other people to do. Well, right? I think we're going to have to work on that because yeah. we're curious about how you became fearlessly authentic. And it's, it's exactly this kind of story that we need. Here's the deal. If you're transparent, you raise consciousness. If you, when I showed that my mother at 51 years old was angry, hostile, incontinent, when I shared that with people, the other people who had, who were home alone, who had never read a word about this illness, were able to feel more their own humanity, that they weren't the only people that were in this situation with a forgetful or senile or demented individual in their lives who didn't know who they were anymore. So you raise consciousness when you tell your story. You know, we've been telling our stories since the first person scrawled a painting on a cave. And we need to tell our stories because we're very, very isolated, especially now. Yes. So tell your story, sister. I will. We're going to talk. Let's go on to your next book, The Roots of Desire. Yeah. Now, I love that because... It's about redheads. <laughs> I, I'm not a redhead. Clearly, I'm not a redhead, but you are. You just act like one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So um, tell me about that. What what drove you to write a book about that? So I heard through somebody that somebody in the world had discovered the quote gene for red hair. And I thought, and this was right when we were going through all of the genomic discoveries and we were all felt so sort of hepped up on the, after the OJ trial, we all thought we knew what DNA was. Of course, none of, nobody could be you know, I asked 10 people explain DNA to me and they're like, Oh, well, I don't know. So I thought now, wait a second, that's really interesting to me. But then I heard that someone had discovered the red, the gene for red hair. And I thought that's insane. Who cares? Because we only care about genetics that show us the cause of illness or, or genetics that are going to make somebody money. You know, we don't really care about these and we're, and we're not at all good at talking about skin color. We are so bad at that in this country. I wonder if what, I can write it. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, race. I mean, the racism conversation just leads us nowhere every time we try to have it. And we get very defensive and, it, and we haven't gotten it right because we haven't gotten our original story right. 
So I thought, can I contribute to this conversation, but take it someplace else to hair color? Because everybody has assumptions about redheads. And I was a redhead, you know, born a redhead. And I thought, wait a minute, this could be really, really fun. So I tracked down the doctor who discovered the gene. It's actually a mutation on a gene. He's in Edinburgh, Scotland. And I asked him, you know, tell me what you found. And he told me, and I thought, this is too great to pass up. So I got on a plane and I went over there and then he introduced me to 25 other scientists and people that I had to talk to. And I ended up traveling for two years, looking at the history of the story of how we relate to redheads. Everyone thinks redheads are highly sexualized, bad tempered. Well, it turns out the story of red hair goes back to the beginning of story itself. And when you want to paint someone as unpredictable, fiery, Judas was painted as a redhead by the ninth century in pretty much every illustration of him, because it's a way of saying to the illiterate, that's what evil looks like. So I found all these versions of that sitting in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, completely on a whim one afternoon during Evensong, I was sitting on the right side of the choir and I look up and there's this huge mosaic triptych up on the wall. And in the first picture, it's Adam and Eve, happy as they can be. She's got 14 karat gold tiles for her hair. In the second picture, she's biting the apple, 14 gold carat gold tiles for her hair. And in the third picture, she's getting summoned out of the garden and she's wearing nothing but her red hair that covers her body. I didn't know that. I know, right? And I looked at that and I went, wait a minute, even here, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. So it makes a great story. It does. You know what? When you said that, I do think of the characters that have been created like in cartoons, like in the Archies. Well, Archie yeah. was a redhead, but he wasn't really fiery or a vixen. He was men I think are it's, different. Right. It's different for men. Right. Yeah. So there was a show. Um, it was a spinoff, I think, like Melrose Place. It was in the 90s. Do you remember right. that? Yeah. And there was a woman. I wanted to be her. Her name was Sydney and she had red hair. Yes. I don't know if you remember her. Yes. And I went to my hairdresser and I went to take my dark hair and make it red. And we were going through the process because I wanted to be a redhead. I thought it was so sexy. And as it turned out, you know, I I stayed a redhead for about three days because you have to change all the clothes in your closet. You have to change your eyebrows, like everything that I had in my closet did not match being a brunette, my lipstick, makeup, like everything. So it seemed too difficult. But even when you think of, you know, the villains, right? In the Batman, I'm thinking Batman right now or the Avengers. I think there's like somebody with red hair. I don't know. Or yeah, and then they Barry. use it. They still use it. It's it's a very as I interviewed so many people on this subject and in terms of the cultural iconography of what are we saying to people? Mm-hmm. And we are saying, look. There is a, it's with women, it's about sex. With men, it's about being unempowered. They're very different. It all has to do with Judas. Judas was pretty much the first iconic redhead in the male category. So there's a split right away in early storytelling, and it's everywhere. And redheads, I've been telling surgeons this forever, whether it be oral surgery or major surgery, I've been telling people constantly, you got to give me more, you got to give me more anesthesia. And they were like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I have, I woke up in every surgical procedure I ever had. It turns out to be true. That science was done by a guy in in Canada that we know that redheads have a different pain threshold, that we have a different uh, uh, ability to be put under in in anesthetically. We know that we bleed more. So there's a lot that we learned and we learned 
that I can in because most redheads live the biggest production, biggest percentage of redheads live in Scotland, that in Scotland, women in, in Scotland have a particular remarkable thing, which is that they can absorb sunlight on cloudy days. So they do not get rickets and rickets prevent women from having babies. It softens the pelvis bone. So it's wow. crazy. Wow. Right? That's crazy. All right. We have, I want to finish talking about this though, because it's very intriguing. We have to take a quick break. So stay with us with Marion, and we are going to be talking about more books and how to write a book, how to write your own memoir. I can't wait to, to talk about this. So we'll be back in a few minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. On Fearlessly Authentic, Jody talks about mental and physical well-being, and the key to both starts with proper nutrition. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan was created to help your body feel better. Whether your goal is to lose weight, gain muscle, or just feel lighter and more energetic, Following this meal plan can help you get there. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan is a 21-day plan to help you learn the most important things about the food we eat and what foods are right for you based on your goals and activity level. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan is a real plan for real life. This is not a diet, but a change in lifestyle. The plan is simple and easy for you to follow. In the 21-day plan, you will receive meal ideas, snack ideas, a grocery list, and a 21-day journal crucial to your success with inspirational quotes to keep you motivated and keep track of your progress. The key to success is commitment, consistency, and willpower. Be fearless and trust the journey. Go to JodyFit.com to purchase the JodyFit meal plan now and use the promo code podcast to get 25% off. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. listening to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments you may have. Send an email to info at jodyharrisonbauer.com. That's info at jodyharrisonbauer.com. Now, back to Fearlessly Authentic. And we are back. Thank you for joining us again. I'm here with Marion Roach-Smith, and we are talking about a few of the books that she's written, 
And this last one, the roots of desire about redheads and the, the gene. Yeah. The gene mutation. The, that causes- the gene. Yeah. So what is the gene mutated with? Is that a really dumb question? No, no, no. It's just that it's an, it's when we talk about gene mutations, we talk about difference, you know, something suddenly is a little bit different. And we all remember from studying evolution that differences then go on, whether they, if they're a strength, they go on. And if they're not, they don't. And right. the redheads cannot talk, cannot possibly tolerate the, the, uh, the sun in, in Africa, in, in, on, on the uh, meridian of the, of the planet they can't live on that kind of, in that kind of sunlight. So the gene, even though it emerged in Africa, like most of us did, you know, mm-hmm, almost right. all of us did, uh, had to get the hell out of there. So it travels and it survives in places that have no sunlight. Like Scotland. It, yeah. The equator is not what you want, where you want to live. So right. there you are in Scotland. And it's hilarious to be in Scotland and be a redhead because it's the only place I've ever been where I felt like I was swimming in a sea of people like me. You know, mostly I've been in places where I'm the only redhead in the room or there's another person in the school or whatever. So that was just really fascinating to see, you know, to travel around and see where redheads are. But the story is just great. And it it was fun. And and I had a wonderful time writing it. And and Harper's Magazine did a feature on a lot of people did stories on it because nobody had written about that before. So there we were. Are you in the process of writing another book? No, I'm in the process now. What in my in my most recent book, the memoir project, which you referred to in the mm-hmm. introduction, um, is a book that I wrote and then built a business around. So I'm yeah, tell I, me about that. I reinvented myself for the 912th time. Um, I I know I you know that. something about that about yes, people, I love old, that. Ms. Fearlessly Authentic. Yes, is the ability to reinvent ourselves is so important because as we develop and develop curiosities in different directions, you don't want to stay in the same place, right? So you want to be a, a fitness person. You want to be a person with a voice like you are now, you know, with this wonderful show. I wanted to be, I want, learned a lot writing about Alzheimer's disease, writing about my mother, writing about myself. I learned a lot about the power of telling one's tale that I had not been trained to do as a journalist. Mm. You're supposed to keep yourself out of the story. And I was really taken by the idea of memoir and what it does for people. So I started teaching it at a little art center in upstate New York, and it was very fun. And I loved that. And then I wrote a book about it and the book got bought and the book has been selling now for 12 years, which is a really thrilling thing to happen to a writer to have a book be successful. But what I did was I built a business around it and it's an online business where I teach memoir and I get to work with other people's stories. So I'm also a huge believer if you've been given the advantages that I've been given and had these successes, that it's time to give it back. So that's what my business is based on, is teaching everyone what I know about writing books, essays, op-eds, personal essays. And it's really wonderful. I've got literally thousands of clients worldwide. And people there, I've got 64 books on my shelf of people that have published that have worked with me. So that's pretty wonderful. That is really wonderful. Why did you choose memoirs as as the vehicle to teach people? Yeah, it's because memoir is the single greatest portal to self-discovery. I don't know how I feel about anything until I write it down. You know how we talk. Oh, Jody, I went to this restaurant last night. It was like so great. It was great. Like you got to go. Like you just learned nothing, right? <laughs> so if you flip that a little bit and say, what do I really think about gun control? What do I really think about God? What do I really think about marriage? What do I really think about parenting? 
and you sit down and you write 750 words about what you really derived from being your daughter's mother. You're about to discover what you really think. You're about to get past that. It's great, which isn't so informative. No. And so we learn and we integrate. In other words, all of the experience of mother there, motherhood is there inside you. All of those first school shoes that you bought, all of those graduations you attended, all of those skinned knees, all of those softball games you sat through, it's all in there. But you haven't really processed and integrated it. So sit down and write about it. And you will come away with an appreciation of your life that will bring you to your knees. And I think that's a damn good place to be. I think that's beautiful. Do you think that everybody, do you truly believe in your heart of hearts that everybody has a story to share? Everybody. So you think everybody's story is interesting? I think everybody's story is worth writing. I don't suspect that everybody's story is necessarily going to be interesting to others to read. Mm -hmm. But I know that in this world where we're othering people all the time, that as I reach out and read outside of my own comfort zone, and I read about cultures that I know nothing about, and I teach people, I have a, a woman in a class right now who calls in from Karachi, Pakistan, and she gets up at three in the morning for my master class that I take. And the other day on the class, I mean, I get all choked up saying this, it's, it's six o'clock in the morning for her, it's eight o'clock at night for us. And we hear this sound, the seven of us on the call coming through her microphone, And it's the call to prayer in her Muslim country Mm. coming from halfway around the world so that we can hear it. I needed that sound. I needed to understand who she is, right? That's a beautiful experience. So that I believe that not every, every story is meant to be read by other people. Some are just meant for you. Some are meant for your family. I wish my parents, both writers had written their stories. They didn't. And so I think that there's various purposes for the stories but all of them benefit the writer. So when somebody comes to you and says, I have a memoir that I want to write, I don't know if anyone's going to find it interesting or then you've got the person who says, I want to write a memoir and I want it to be a bestseller. How do you handle those two different (laughs) people? It's a great, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful dilemma. Everybody secretly wants to have a bestseller. I just assume that everybody assumes that I would yeah, the day they start writing is the day to go pick out the dress for the Today Show, right? Yes. And, and the and the and the handbag to match. So let's just first start talking about what are you writing about? Because there's a huge distinction between autobiography, which is your whole life, and memoir, which is about one aspect of your life. The way I teach memoir is you need an argument. You need to tell me the value of living fearlessly authentic lives, right? You need to you need to show me in your life story the scenes that you're going to pick out from your life story that that you can curate from your life that prove your argument that living fearlessly authentically is the way to go. And that's going to be, you didn't know it in act one, you started to learn it in act two and look at the benefit of the life you live now in act three. So there's an argument in every piece of memoir, the way I teach it. And the argument is basically what you know after what you've been through. So you know that being fearlessly authentic beats the living daylights out of not being fearlessly authentic. And I bet you had a hell of a time learning it. 
very, very hard. Yes. There's it's been a, a struggle. Story. Yes. So yes. I don't want the story of your great, 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 great grandfather that starts there and ends with what you had for lunch today. Right. I want you to curate like beads on an abacus. This scene plus this scene plus this scene adds up to showing that I now know that despite the cost, being fearlessly authentic is worth it. See the difference? I do. And I always thought a memoir was an autobiography. So I'm glad that you. you Everybody does. The difference. Right. Yeah. yeah. I thought, you know, that's, that's what I thought. And, you know, when we first talked and you mentioned that writing a memoir is the single greatest portal to self-discovery, that really stuck with me for days and days. And I'm so glad that you brought that up also today, you know, not to say that what I'm doing is similar to yours, because again, I've never written a book, but one of the things that I do to help my clients progress is to keep a journal. Yes. So they have to write down what they're eating. It depends on who the woman is, write down who they're eating, what they're eating. How do they feel? How, what did they do for movement that day? Whatever it is, however, I try to get as as much information from each client as possible, because that helps me help them. So if they don't journal at all for me and they don't understand why they're not progressing, I can't help them. Right. But, but like what you're saying is at the end of their journey where they've reached their goal, for example, it's very emotional. It's cathartic. They've learned so much about themselves that if they didn't write, they wouldn't have gotten from A to Z. Right. There you go. Yeah. Very similar. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a form of excellence in both discoveries, right? How can I be the best self I can be? How can I understand myself as best right. as I can? And I think it's remarkable. And, and as I said, you can write, and also you can have a writing life if you write the way I teach people to write. And if you write that one big book, it starts with your great, great, great grandfather and ends with what you had for lunch today, you're never going to finish it and no one's ever going to read it. But if you start saying, what are my areas of expertise? Like, what are the big things I've been through? Well, I've been through mm-hmm. caregiving. So that's one thing I write about extensively. I've, ra- I've raised 12 dogs in my life. I've written and published so much about my dogs, but I don't write about caregiving and my dogs. I write essays about my dogs. I write essays about caregiving and I garden. For instance, I've been gardening for 30 years, but I am never going to write a how-to garden book. I don't know the difference between a whatever and a whatever. I just know that gardening enriches my soul. So when I write from the garden, it's with that argument that out here, there's wonder, there's beauty, but I don't do how to. So it's different areas of your yes. expertise you can write from and have a writing life and write forever, as opposed to this one big book that everybody's so sure, you know, oh, everyone should read my life story. No, no, no. no. Can you teach anybody how to write? I can teach anybody how to structure a piece and I can make their writing better. You have got to read, read, read to become a writer. You have got to be a reader too. It is essential. And you've got to be open to working on your writing. So we don't want to see your first draft. We call, in my world, we call it the vomit draft. And there's a really good reason for that. So we want to see you work on that writing. But I have had three clients um, publish the Modern Love column in the New York Times. You know, I've had clients publish op-eds in major newspapers on huge topics that are deeply important to this country. Um, And I have taught them because nobody knows how to write an op-ed until they're taught, right? It's a structure. It's a form. And so is a book, by the way. And book structure is what no one knows. So that's a long answer. I can teach anyone to write a book, but they have to be willing to work on their writing because ultimately it's going to live and die by how well it's written. 
And I think that goes, that I think makes sense, right? If you told me, yes, Jody, I can teach anybody. Well, not anybody who's not willing to put into the work. You know, I started learning how to do Latin dancing. I started in January and I learned the cha-cha, samba, rumba, jive, and pasa doble. Fabulous. And now I have musicality, so I wouldn't be a person. Why would I want to learn how to dance if I had no musicality? And I enjoy music and I took ballroom dancing when I was in junior high, but it was sort of a promise to my mom before she passed away that I would go back to that and I was going to become a champion because I like to compete at everything that I do. So I I sort of asked my my instructor, who's a Ukrainian professional instructor, um, said, I can teach anybody to dance, but they have to be willing to put in the work. Yeah. I could teach a monkey to dance, he said, Yeah, but they have to practice. Right. And I think that's with everything. I think it really, really is. If you're willing to put in the work, and I think with writing and correcting me if I'm wrong, if you're willing to really, I think there's a lot of facing yourself, the quote unquote demons that so, so many people don't want to face that their journey took them on, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think that that's exactly the, the issue here. You've, you've got to decide what you want, right? You've got to decide that you're willing to do the work. You've got, I, I always say to my writers, you better love the work. Try loving mm. the work. And if you're willing to go on that process of discovery, it can be fantastic. Now, that being said, I also handle a lot of memoir that comes from abuse, a lot of memoir that comes from recovery. And so I make the very strong distinction. I'm not asking you to go back and relive that. I'm not asking you to reanimate it. I'm asking you to have a look at it. And so we really, really, really need to have those conversations. I have those conversations all day, every day with writers about what am I asking you to do as a memoirist to go back into a trauma? One of the things that I found astonishingly during Me Too was that the number of writers that talked about how not only did they lose the territory of their own bodies when there was an abuse story, but they lost their voices because somebody said, don't tell. Right. And when they started to write, they got their voices back and they got in control of their narrative. They didn't change the ending. They decide where the story ends. Wow. 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 Right. Big wow. Big wow. Tears because that's what I witnessed over and over and over with people is that it's not that they make up a new ending. It's that they decide when and where this abuse ends, where they're carrying it what their voice is. So So there's real cosmic change in writing. There's that education and empowerment again, you know, educating themselves, educating others, and then empowering themselves with that power they have of what they've created and written and then sharing it with other people. Absolutely. And it's, um, it's really a great vehicle to find your voice again. Yes. Because we all have that voice and sometimes we forget we have this God-given gift right. that we don't share enough of. Would right. you say that most of the writers that you're working with are women? Yes. Memoir is absolutely more women than men. I have met male clients, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But most of the people in my classes are women. And it's fascinating. And as I said before, it's fascinating now it's a global audience. So that's very educating for everybody. But we do have men and I love them too. You know, we we have a lot of fun. We have a lot of honesty. We have a lot of crying. We have a lot of really, really big emotional content. 
Um, but what I see is people change while they're writing. And that's a remarkable thing to witness. Really take ownership of things. I have clients who are processing suicides of their siblings, of their parents. Um, and they've helped me process suicides of my friends, right? Because I'm learning from them how you start the clock ticking again. What happens in that unimaginable, impossible grief that stops you from hearing and thinking and seeing and then when things start to come back on, and it's fascinating to look at it on the page and be educated about what the what I refer to as the human pilot light and what keeps it lit. You know, the human pilot light is the most interesting thing in the world. Why do you think there are more women writing about writing memoirs than men? Do you ever they're more comfortable with okay. accessing their feelings? They're 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 more they're more they've been given more permission. They're used to being in an environment where other people ask them how they feel. They may not get that at home. They may not get that in their marriages, but mm-hmm. they get it with a friend. And so what I offer them is a place to come and, and really use their voice. So being a very curious person, I I would think that you've learned so much from the the global men and women that you have in your in your school. Yes, I'm I calling learned- it a school in your in the memoir project, but I, I like um, to think of it. I think of it as a school. It is. It is. And I learn more from them than they learn from me, I think, every single day because I'm I'm running the lines of their lives. You know, I'm reading their lives and I'm thinking, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that grief is a process that must be gone through slowly or else you're destined to stay in it forever. Somebody taught Mm -hmm. me that in her book. Right. Right. That if you because I'm a type A, I want to rush through it. I want to master it. There's no mastering grief. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like mastering meditation. It doesn't happen. It's called practicing meditation. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a light touch. It's a light touch. And every type A person that's written a book where he's going to master meditation, you know, if that's their crisis that they have to endure. And then they have to learn to take their hands off the steering wheel. And I love those books, mm. but they teach me, right? I didn't know right. that about grief. I thought you could just you know, stiff upper lip your way through it. I come from a good Goyam family. You know, <laughs> nobody talks, somebody has a stroke at dinner, nobody notices. It's like pass the peas. Yes. Right. You know, right. right. <laughs> unlike, unlike my Jewish family, the complete opposite, <laughs> complete opposite. So if there is somebody listening right now who's on the fence, they want to write, they want to get their voice out. How can they get in touch with you? And what advice would you give them to taking that action to doing what they feel in their gut and in their heart that they want to do? Absolutely. And that's so generous of you. I'm at Marion Roach uh, at Marion Roach at dot com. Marion Roach dot com. That's the website. Wait, give and it again. Marion Roach, M-A-R-I-O-N-R-O-A-C-H, Marion Roach dot com. And we are the biggest teacher of memoir there is. And it's a, there's an entry level class. It's easy. It's gentle. It's 90 minutes. It's taught all the time. And I love teaching it. And they're all live. I have recorded my classes too during COVID because it was such a high demand. But what I love is to actually interact with all the writers and I interact and I leave it on the field every single day. My husband usually comes in here and comes and gets me at the end of the day. He's like, okay, time to rehydrate you. You've been leaving it on the field all day for everybody else. Wow. Right? Because you got to put it out there. The stories are there and I'm very respectful of them. But you've got it, and you've got to treat each one individually, right? So, marionroach.com, lots and lots of classes, everything from the entry level class to book structure to op eds to how to write your first book. 
I teach a master class where you'll have a first draft of a book in six months. And I, I would just, I just love to meet people. Promise, so promise, promise, six months. Promise. If you wow. work if Jody, if you work hard. <laughs> I am. I'm a very, very disciplined person. And um, it's, that's my next thing. And maybe getting on stage and doing bikini competitions again, but we'll, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. And so I have one last question for you as we're coming to the end of the show. What does it mean for you to be fearlessly authentic? It means to really say yes to my own ideas. So I may have a crazy, what seems like a crazy idea. I may say, oh, I want to write a book. Oh, I'm red hair because somebody discovered the gene. It's, it's leaning in. Fearlessly authentic means to absolutely lean into my own ideas. It's so easy to pitch them to someone else and have them talk you out of it. The key here is to say, what do you want? Why do you want it? Where is that going to take you? Wow, let's go. And so it's got to be fearless. It's got to be authentic. It's got to come from my own soul, right? That I just want to follow up on that. We talk ourselves out of some of our very best ideas. And that's very, very sad to me. I never want to be able to say, I wish I had written that. I would rather say I wrote it. I completely agree with you. I love your answer. I feel the same way that, when is your birthday? April 7th. Okay. You're an Aries. I'm a Capricorn. You're fire. Uh, I'm earth. Yes. Um, but that's why we get along. Yes. So it's, um, I find it interesting. You said something in there about leaning in and mm-hmm. a lot of people use that a lot when they're interested. It's that whole being interested, but leaning into what you really feel, what you really want to be. And like you just said, so many people shy away from that lean because they get scared. And I, like you, do not want to die with any regrets. And look, we're at the the back end here right now, but I'm going to live another, I don't know about you, but I think we're the same. We're going to live another 40 years. I, okay. I Right? I'm there. Okay, me too. So it's, I don't want to die with any regrets. Life is too rich and too beautiful and we've got to enjoy every second and every minute of it. And um, so that's where we do need to face our fears because we're going to face them every single day. Absolutely. Creativity is one of the most wonderful ways to face those fears too. Am I, am I afraid every time I sit down to write that it won't be there? You bet I am. I, all these years later, all these books later, all these thousands of published words later, but that fear is something that I harness and get to. I'm respectful of it, but I don't listen to it. It's like, okay, thanks for sharing. I'm going to write anyway. And that's what fearlessly authentic is. You know, that voice, whoever told you that writing is valuable, whoever told you you can't make money at it, throw that away and say, what have I got to put on the page today? Because I'm here, I'm a writer and I want my voice out there in the world, you know, contribute. I love everything. I I can't wait to start working with you. And for anybody who's listening, if you are on the fence about writing a book, please get in touch with Marianne and um, all of her information will be on the podcast and um, give them your website one more time. MarionRoach.com, M-A-R-I-O-N-R-O-A-C-H.com. Come and see me. I can't yes, wait. Yes. Thank you so much for being on Fearlessly Authentic. And for everybody listening today, thank you so much for listening in. And until next week, have a Fearlessly Authentic week. Bye. Everybody. Thank you for tuning in this week to Fearlessly Authentic. 
please listen again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition with your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and unlock the keys to a more powerful you. 